So in today's reading, we hear about this very wealthy man. And in the 10th year of his reign, King Zedekiah of Judah came to this wealthy man, to this prophet Jeremiah, and said, O mighty prophet, prophecy to me of how we shall gloriously overcome the Babylonian army. In what unpredictable and astonishing way will we rout this huge army now surrounding our city? Give me comfort with this vision of their imminent downfall. And Jeremiah said, Well, your highness, they're literally about to break down the walls, destroy the temple, destroy everything in the city, and haul you and basically everybody else of means off to Babylon to be slaves. And King Zedekiah responded, You're fired. The city of Jerusalem was surrounded by one of the most powerful armies in the ancient world. The end was near, and everybody could see the writing on the wall. People were busy liquidating their assets and fortifying bunkers and investing in trail mix for the long force march to Babylon. And what does Jeremiah do? He takes 17 shekels of silver. And remember, King David bought all of Mount Moriah the whole Temple Mount, 32 acres in the heart of Jerusalem. King David bought all that for 50 shekels of silver. Jeremiah takes this large amount, 17 shekels of silver, and he buys not a mighty horse, not an armored vehicle, not a really nice condo in downtown Babylon. Jeremiah buys this piece of property in Judah. This is a piece of property that in days or maybe hours is going to be trampled by Nebuchadnezzar's army that is going to belong to nobody but Nebuchadnezzar alone. It's going to be worthless. And yet Jeremiah buys it. This is like learning that a company is about to file for bankruptcy. And rather than shorting their stock, you you sell everything to buy 10,000 shares. This is a completely crazy, bizarre thing for Jeremiah the prophet to do. And what's more, he does it in the most official and public way possible. He does it in front of everyone in the king's court. They weigh out the silver, they sign two deeds, they have an open one and a closed one, he makes all these public proclamations, and everybody thinks that he has gone absolutely crazy. But Jeremiah is using his wealth to do one thing. He's using it to proclaim the power of God, the kingdom of God, the ultimate faithfulness and mercy of God. In buying this field, Jeremiah proclaims that this terrible state of affairs, this Babylonian captivity that's coming, is a temporary one. That God will have mercy on his people, that he will come and make things right. That soon the land will again be verdant, will be blossoming with olive orchards and pomegranates and grain and wine. And Jeremiah is putting his money where his mouth is. He may be on the verge of the Babylonian captivity, but he lives in a different reality altogether. The world is falling apart around him, but Jeremiah can see the coming redemption of Israel. Jeremiah is already living in and for the salvation of God. And this is in stark contrast to the other rich man in today's reading. This rich man from the gospel is basically the opposite of Jeremiah in every way. For him, resources are scarce. They're limited. 
And the whole point of life is wringing a little bit of happiness, a little bit of meaning out of the wealth that you've got. His motto is the famous Epicurean phrase, which St. Paul parodies in 1 Corinthians, eat and drink now for tomorrow we die. Life is short, wealth is scarce, pleasure is fleeting, get it while you can. And so this man lives in a sumptuous palace while another man dies of starvation at his gate. From his perspective, the world is falling apart, but he has to protect what's his. There is no hope in God, and self-preservation is the only point of existence. This rich man, the text tells us, is so rich that he is wearing purple. To us, that does not sound impressive. It sounds eccentric and kind of weird. He could be wearing mauve. He could be wearing teal. He could be wearing ecru. Who cares? But in the ancient world, purple only came from a little tiny gland in a little tiny sea snail. So if you wanted to dye something this rich color of purple, it would take like way more than the weight in gold of a bunch of sea snail glands. It takes like just thousands and thousands and thousands of these little tiny glands, which are hard to harvest, take a long time, it's extremely professionalized, to such an extent that you could, you could have a suit of golden armor that would be much cheaper than a purple toga, which is crazy. So this was such a symbol of power and wealth and splendor that just 30 years after this gospel was written, the emperor Nero actually prohibited anyone except himself from wearing purple on pain of death. Margaret Raper, beware. <laughs> so this, this is a guy who is not comfortable, he's not well off, he's not doing okay. This is an ancient world Bill Gates. So for this guy to tell the butler, to tell the underbutler, to tell the first footman, to tell the second footman, to tell the kitchen maid, to tell a slave, to bring Lazarus a sandwich, that would not be a big deal. This guy is so wealthy that if he wanted to just build another palace for Lazarus to live out his days in, that would not be a big deal. But that would not be the point of wealth for him. So for him, the correct use of wealth is his own happiness. But what he doesn't realize is that wealth is subject to the law of diminishing returns. So if you have no money, and you're about to die of starvation, wealth makes a real big difference. If you are constantly worried about paying the light bill and you're worrying about your kids being homeless next month, wealth makes a huge difference. But once you get to this point of stability, once you reach this point at which wealth dispels the specter of impending doom, the change it makes in your life becomes less dramatic. So if you have to commute three hours to work each way every day, on like nine city buses, the difference between that commute and a 20 minute commute in your car is a huge difference. That's like almost six more hours to spend with your kids or whatever. But the difference between commuting 20 minutes in a Honda and being stuck in traffic and being stuck in traffic for 20 minutes in a Maserati is not as big of a difference. But we get stuck in these patterns of misplaced trust. We see what a huge difference wealth can make. And then we become like people playing a slot machine. You win once and you just keep in pumping in quarters and quarters and quarters and quarters. Because we imagine that wealth will continue to improve our life enormously by a factor of 10. And that the more we get, the better we'll feel. But in reality, believing that wealth is gonna buy us joy, 
or that the joy we now possess or the health or the safety we now possess all come from our money, that's just the creation of an idol. All good things, safety, joy, life itself, these all come from God. And this rich man is tragic, not because he has so much, but because money is his God. Scarcity is his worldview. And he cannot even see the power and the mercy and the faithfulness of the one true God. Even after death, he is so concerned with being a VIP and getting his due that he orders, Lazarus, he orders Abraham to order Lazarus to come down and serve him. He's so stuck in these patterns of thought that he can't even repent and accept the salvation of God. And because of this, the rich man never discovers true wealth. He remains eternally poor. For only in God is the law of diminishing returns overturned. Instead of being great at first and steadily becoming less great, the more God you have in your life, the more astonishing he seems. The closer you grow to God, the more unknown vistas of peace and joy and meaning open to you. In this life, and we're told in the life to come. So in today's reading, we have these two wealthy men Jeremiah, who is quick to put his money where his mouth is, to use his resources to proclaim to the people the salvation of God, the love of God. And this rich man, who doesn't even have a name, whose God is his wealth. So much so that he cannot even spare some change to keep Lazarus alive. What would this rich man's life have looked like if he had repented? If he had made his own proclamation of the love of God and the power of God with what he had, what would it look like if he, like Jeremiah, were living as though the captivity were already over? If he were living in the kingdom of heaven here and now? I don't think personally that it would mean that he would be the one covered with sores and being licked by dogs and starving to death. I think he would still be living a wonderful life, still be feasting, but he would invite a lot more folks to those feasts. And I think that he would see Lazarus not as a problem or a source of guilt or an annoyance or a sign of a greater social problem. He would see him as his brother and he would say to you, be fed, be healed. The kingdom of God has come near. Martin Luther said that no one can feed every beggar in the world, but everyone can feed the beggar at his own gate. In all that we do and in all that we have, we as Christians are tasked to proclaim the love of God to the world, the goodness and faithfulness of God to the world. And we do this in part by using our wealth for his purposes, seeking always his will in all that we are and all that we do and all that we have. If we have this attitude, wrote St. John Chrysostom nearly 1,700 years ago, we will certainly offer our money. And by nourishing Christ in the poor here and laying up great profit hereafter, we will be able to attain the good things which are to come. And by the grace and kindness of our Lord Jesus Christ, with whom be glory and honor and might, to the Father, together with the Holy Spirit, now and even unto the ages of ages. Amen. <laughs>